Hi, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number 19. My name is Kieran, and this week I start my series about the history of coins, and we have our regular tech time out where this week I chat about how and where to research, and of course some updates from my adventures in metal detecting. So let's get on with the show. Hey, thank you for listening. We're at episode 19 and I hope you enjoy the show this week. If you want to give me feedback or interact with the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at DetectingThe or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. Or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. If you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. So firstly, onto my adventures in metal detecting this week. I went back to that beach where I had the disaster last week, just so I could have some closure and remove the bad memories of that hunt. I had an average day with several euros and toy cars in the bag and what looks to be a junker silver bracelet. Well, that's what it rang up like on the Equinox, so we'll say it is silver. Speaking of the Equinox, there is a new update out that adds 4 kilohertz to the frequency range. My update went off without a hitch except that the magnetic coupling on the USB cable happened to have a little piece of steel wire attached to the magnets. Luckily, I didn't plug in the cable without noticing the wire, otherwise it could have been a disaster for my computer, but it wasn't and thankfully everything went okay. So up to now I have been avoiding talking about history and I don't claim to be an expert at all. My knowledge comes from Wikipedia and various internet searches over the years but I want to start bringing a history element to the show. So this week I start this off by discussing the history of coinage and its adoption across the world. This is a topic way too large to be covering in one short episode so over the next few weeks and episodes we will complete the story. Now, to set your expectations, this will not be a PhD level knowledge transfer here, but enough high level knowledge for you to equip and carry yourself through a conversation down the club, or if you're lucky, a question will come up on a table quiz that you will be able to answer this time. So to start, the invention of coins or coins as we know them today has been attributed to the region of Lydia, located in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey, approximately 630 BC. But did you know that the invention of coins is linked to the King Midas mythology, as King Midas was said to have washed his ability to turn all that he touched to gold away in the Lydian river of Pactolus? Now, with all myths, there's some element of truth. This legend comes from the fact that the river Pactolus had a very high concentration of electrum, which, if you don't know, is an ally of gold and silver. But the invention of coinage doesn't correlate to the real-life King Midas, King Mita, who lived during the 8th century BC, over 100 years prior to the invention of the standardization coin. But during this period, the use of pre-coins with no recognizable image or standardization were used. Standardization using hammer and anvil came in with King Alets of Lydia during 630 BC, with the production of the Lydian Electrum line stator, with line on the obverse and the reverse having an incuse punch, confirming purity. Some terms here out of the blue, but to explain quickly, the obverse of the coin is simply the side of the coin that contains the principal design, while the reverse refers to the other side or the back of the coin. Incuse refers to a punch in the coin or a design that has been impressed below the coin's surface. Early Lydian coins were too valuable to be used in day-to-day -day transactions, as they were valued at approximately one day's sustenance, so it took some time before these ancient coins were used for commerce and trade. 
it wasn't till the rough incuse horse head hemi balls silver fraction of Kaim, a geographical neighbor to lydia that coins were available to the masses making it the first to be used for widespread market economics with the hemioballs used in large scale by the ionian greek mercenaries who wanted to be paid in precious metals electrum in this case at the conclusion of their services it wasn't till the middle of the 6th century bc that king croesus replaced these electrum coins with pure gold and silver called chrysiides with a bull and a ram in eternal conflict on the obverse and again an incused punch on the reverse with the greek world made up of thousands of self-governed city-states most issued their own coins some circulated beyond their borders given an indication that they were being used in intercity trading with the first example of this being the silver stator of agina 550 to 530 bc which depicted a sea turtle on the obverse and again an incused punch of eight sections on the reverse. These coins were so well distributed that they have shown up in hordes in Egypt, but also were adopted as the standard and other cities started to adopt the Aegean weight standard of 6.1 grams to the drachma. However, in Athens, they adopted their own standard called the Attic standard in which the drachma equaled 4.3 grams of silver, over time, these Athenian coins known as owls with the bust of Athena on the obverse and the Athenian owl on the reverse became the most widely used coins during this period. This has been attributed to the extremely tight standard of purity and weight obtained during striking. Tetradrachmas also produced during this period based on the Attic standard of four times the value of a drachma became the standard for large transactions and by the time of Alexander the Great, this large denomination was being regularly used to make large payments, but was often saved for hoarding. Next week, we continue with the history of coins, but up next is this week's Tech Timeout. Time for this week's Tech Timeout. So this week's main topic was all about coins. And believe me, I didn't have that information floating about in my head. It required me to do some bit of research. And that is what this week's Tech Timeout is all about. One of the fundamentals in metal detecting to ensure you are successful is research. If I was creating a metal detecting course, I would start with research. Research, research, research. I know I've tipped on this topic previously, but I can't stress the importance of research and knowing your locality's historic past. So how do I research? So starting with beaches, with beaches you are generally coin shooting while looking for jewellery. You are not going to a beach to relic hunt. So beaches are quite easy to research. The first bit of research for a beach is to actually go to the beach. Not that hard so far, but actually go to the beach when people are there, preferably during high season, and look at where they congregate, what spots are popular for sunbathing or getting on and off the beach, where the bars or shops are. Are they changing clothes? Is there showers? But try also to assess how many people come to the beach at any one time during high season. There is no point in searching a beach if it only gets a few dog walkers a day during high season. You are wasting your time. I still do some of these beaches just for convenience, but you won't be finding many gold or silver rings here. Does the beach have a water park element to it? That will be a hot spot, so start there. So to synopsize quickly, things to research when researching a beach. What's the general population at high season? What are people's movement patterns on the beach? Is there attractions that lend themselves to customers either changing clothes or spending money? Take these three questions and stack rank all your beaches to give an indication of which beaches will be successful for you. And now you have successfully researched your beaches.
Now, other terrain is an altogether different and more difficult task. Generally, we are talking about field sites here, so how and where can you research the viability of a field? The first and most valuable and probably the most obvious is old maps. Not to confirm the cliche here, but X does mark the spot. The X being the site of a local church that may have been there for hundreds of years. Where do you get old maps, I hear you say? Well, there's loads of resources online that will sell you old maps for your area. But actually, the easiest is to go to your local library or planning office. These will have copies of old maps for you to copy for a small fee. Other places to get maps include your national governing body. In Ireland, this would be the National Museum of Ireland. In the UK, it's the British Museum. And in the US, I believe it's the National Park Service. But all have websites that can show you where to not go. But they also have searchable resources, including maps indicating where you should go. Review all maps and look for sites that may have indicated population congregation in the past. For example, ghost towns, old wells, churches, old sports fields, and the list goes on and on. But what do you do when you find the perfect site on an old map? Well, if there's any landmark on the map that still exists today, you should take a modern day map and overlay the old map on top to help identify the modern location of the possible site. I'm not going into the technicalities of overlaying one picture onto another, but you should be motivated enough to Google that bit for yourselves. Google Earth has this facility built in and can give you GPS coordinates of the location. Okay, so say the field you have permission on is not the site of obvious population congregation. What can you do here? Well, something I do is draw a line from the field to a site of population congregation. For example, would people walk from the town to the church via your field? Remember, hundreds of years ago, churches weren't in the centre of towns, but built at the highest location near a town to ensure everybody could see it. Would these people walk through your field to get to that church that may or may not exist anymore? This process can be repeated for all population magnets. Sync up with your local historical group. This will be a gold mine of information for places you can hunt. It will also help with permissions if you are part of this group. Remember, network builds permissions. The historical group will also be able to tell you the sites of any local battles, old fairs and the list goes on and on. They will also have done the legwork with any written accounts from newspapers, books and letters that may capture local events in written form. Now, you can and should read these and do this legwork yourself, but it's always better to check if someone else has done it first and is willing to discuss with you and historical groups are the place for this. They will almost definitely have a list of books that pertain to your locality, which you should read. If after all that your field or site is non-descriptive, one last thing you can do is try and find out how long the field has been used to produce crops or raise livestock. This will give an indication of the population density that may have accumulated over the years. For example, if a field has been used to grow hops in the past, wait for it, it used to be common practice for farmers to bus people out of the cities to help pick hops for a few weeks during the summer with hundreds of people congregating on your seemingly nondescript field. Lastly, if your site or field has no particular interesting past, freestyle it. You never know if an old lord fell off his horse, dropping his signet ring for you to find 200 years later. To recap, how to research an old site. Maps, old maps, new maps, just maps. Eat, sleep and drink old maps. Talk to your local historical group for local knowledge and check out your governing body's resources online. 
One last little bit of research you can do for all and any sites, but restricts the timescale of research because this source is not 200 years old yet. And this is old photographs. You find them anywhere, but I have had success in checking out local antique shops or bars. These photographs were never just taken like selfies today. There was always a reason or event to be captured. Nine times out of 10, you can identify the location from the photograph. We can all have success by just freestyling. But to maximize your finds potential, you need to embrace research. These are the things I do, but make sure to let me know what I've missed or something that you may do that will be beneficial to us all. Okay, I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. If you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you feel like taking your appreciation to the next level, feel free to leave me a positive review on any podcast directory of your choice. Check out our website, www.themetaltechnicshow.com for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there and happy hunting. Happy hunting.